You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we talk about free will. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics and the Humanists, Atheists, and Agnostics of Manitoba. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links for all episodes can be found at lueepodcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have... Donna Harris. Hi, everyone. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Ian James. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> I missed the last couple, so... Yeah, no, it's good to have I'm you sure, back, man. I'm sure people missed me. <laughs> and we haven't had Donna on the show in a while. Yeah. It's yeah. been a long time, yeah. yeah. Welcome back, Donna. Thank you. It's a reunion show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I brought you all here today to convince you that you're all robots and nothing matters. <laughs> yeah, uh, did we really have a choice to yeah. show up here? No. <laughs> Uh, it was determined by the message that I sent via Facebook. Mm -hmm. So today we're talking about free will uh, with a side order of determinism. And this is, as some listeners might have gleaned, a favorite subject of mine. I think, I think we've promised to talk about it several times on the show. I've talked about it before uh, a couple of times. Uh, I gave a uh, talk at Skeptic Camp Winnipeg in, I think, 2011, maybe 2012, uh, on the subject of free will and determinism. And this is a huge topic in philosophy, so as usual, we are barely going to scratch the surface today. But let's start off with uh, defining some terms, I guess. So what is free will? Anyone? I was hoping, actually, that you would come up with a definition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ability to make choices that aren't predetermined. Okay, sure. Yes. That. <laughs> the freedom, <laughs> the freedom to yeah. choose. Sometimes it's defined as uh, as unconstrained exercise of of the will, uh, the ability to freely choose between any number of options uh, without constraint. So, why is it that we think we have free will? Obviously, we've been talking about free will for a long time. I I don't mean us. I don't mean we. You know, here in this room. But I mean. Uh, as a species, we've been talking about free will for a long time. It's a big topic in philosophy and in religion. Why? I have a, I have a, I'm going to answer that question with a question. Why do we, why, you say, why do you think we have free will? Why don't you think we do? <laughs> I think Me, that's a better that, question, too. <laughs> well, just meaning that, like, uh, okay, Jem gave us all homework to read. I gave it a glance over and was completely went over my head. Yeah, it was all terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jim. I apologize. But man, that was some very, uh, some very highbrow uh, type reading material. Highfalutin so, philosophy. Highfalutin, yeah. So, so my question would be: as so coming into this conversation more or less cold, I would say I'm. I think I have free will. I don't. I, I make choices as I as I please. Um, so where does the idea that we don't have free will come from? I'll, I'll I'll touch on that actually, uh, but before we talk about uh, about the case against free will, let's uh, let's try to talk about what uh, what free will is, how we okay. how we typically define free will in a technical sense. So, free will is often defined in terms of contra-causal free will. This is also called libertarian free will, and what that means is 
we fundamentally, we as as minds, are uncaused actors. We choose at a fundamental level what actions we will take. We choose our choices, if you will. So we, when we're making decisions, are in some sense outside of the chain of cause and effect. So we could at any moment do anything. Our actions, our decisions are not predetermined. Hmm. They are our own. We are the originators of our actions and our ideas and our decisions. When you try to trace the causal chain back, the buck stops here. It stops with us. That seems fairly evident. <laughs> so there's more, I'm assuming. Right. So 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 that's that is the libertarian definition of free will, the contra-causal definition of free will. So would that definition mean that our environment has no effect on us? And that is the interesting question. <laughs> Thank you for Damn asking. It. Because uh, science tells us that there seems to be at least some causal influence. So you know, Ian, after a wrestling show, when you toss back, you know, six beers or whatever, and uh, you walk into a lamppost you know on, so well. on, on on your way home. You know me so well. Did you choose freely to, you know, smash your nose on that lamppost or, or, or not? I mean, presumably not, but the beers seem to have had an effect on your, at least your ability to exercise your will. I think it, the beers may have had an effect on my ability to avoid the lamppost, <laughs> but I don't think because I don't I think, think that's what uh, Jen the, said. <laughs> well, I know I think I understand what you're getting at. I guess what Ashton was saying: Do you have external factors? Factors, thank you. Yeah. That that like the beer or the fact that I'm all hyped up from the wrestling show, <laughs> influencing my decision making. Is that wrestling show hindering or causing my decisions to be different than they would be normally? Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. But we we can know, uh, to, to, again, a reasonable definition of no, we can know that external factors do influence not just how we make our decisions, but which decisions we make. You know, whether, sure. whether a parole board has just eaten lunch has a major impact on whether the inmates they see get parole. That's terrifying. Yeah. And we will talk about the criminal justice system on a future podcast. Didn't uh, we also talk about it on a past podcast? Uh, I don't know. Who, who, who remembers these things? <laughs> I was hoping you would remember these things. <laughs> I don't need to remember things. I've got a computer in front of me. Ah, yes. We'll get into this uh, further a little bit later, but we know that there are influences on our will. We know that while it seems that we can make choices between any number of options when we're, say, choosing what to eat... We know, for example, that if you've had a really stressful day at work and you come home, you are much more likely to, you know, choose to have Oreos for supper than salad, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there, there is an influence there. There's an external influence on the choices that you make. Now, we can't make the case that that influence is entirely causative, whether you've had a stressful day at work doesn't mean 100% for certain you're going to go for the Oreos instead of the salad. But we know that it does make it more likely. Hmm. So is that... That's... Okay. Okay, I also understand in, in a larger scheme of things that it's not entire free will. 
in that you can't just choose to do anything at any one moment. You are constrained by where you are, uh, your environment, where you are in life, how much money you have. Yeah, you, you don't have free will to fly to the moon, you know. I Yeah, exactly, I wish, but yeah. Uh, and, and that's why we'll talk about the the freedom to make choices rather than the freedom to do things, you know. Right. You, whether you decide to fly to the moon or not, you know, you probably aren't going to get there if if you don't have a lot of money and a rocket ship, you know. <laughs> yes, it would help. It really would help. And and most most reasonable people wouldn't say that that means we don't have free will. Yes. You know, I, I can still try to make that decision, but, you know, I can't really act on that decision. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of off the table. Okay, uh, if, if you guys want to do it in uh, sort of in uh, in reverse order, I can lay out uh, a basic case for determinism, uh, or at least explain the basic idea, and then we can go back and we can talk about the, uh, the case in favor of free will. So, first of all, a, a basic primer. What is determinism? Well, at its most simple, everything has a cause. That, that's it. Your actions, your beliefs, your ideas, your intentions. Uh, think, of, uh, think of any decision you've ever made, uh, something perhaps that you agonized over. A decision where you honestly felt it could go either way. According to determinism, it couldn't go either way. It could have gone exactly one way, the way that it did go. <laughs> if you somehow rewound the tape of history and played that decision over again, you would have the same information available to you, you would consider and agonize over the same things, and you would eventually arrive at the same decision, convinced maybe that it was a hard choice that could have gone either way. If the conditions that contributed to your decision had been different, you would have made a different choice. Like, have you ever, have you ever sat down, have you ever done something really dumb and you're like, <laughs> oh, why did I do that? Yep. Have you ever oh, yeah. done something like that? Never no. once. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think, why did I do that? The, the fact that you can ask why implies, at least to some degree, determinism. And it implies that there are reasons you make decisions. Those reasons are causative factors. You're admitting that your decisions are caused by things. Other processes in your brain which are caused by other processes in your brain which are caused by, you know, whether you're hungry or uh, how impulsive you are, which is not something that you can really choose, uh, all of these things will contribute to whether you blew your 20 grand on, uh, you know, uh, on the roulette wheel at, at, in Vegas. In, in this sense, determinism is often held to be incompatible with traditional definitions of free will. Uh, because intuitively, it seems that if there's a reason that you made a particular choice, then that choice wasn't really freely chosen. It was chosen for a reason. Your thoughts and your actions, everything that makes you, you, is the product of prior causes and the cause of future effects. You can't fight causation. As the Borg would say, Resistance is futile. Nice. We were told yeah. to get that in there. <laughs> happy now, happy now. So, mm -hmm. walk me, so, uh, <laughs> so you go to a car lot and you, you, you're given the red car or the blue car. Yeah. Um, in theory, you should have free will to choose, well, either right. I want the red car or the blue car. I have that choice to make either. I have the ability to make either choice. I have the right sure. or the privilege or whatever it is to make either choice. What you're saying is that somewhere in your mind or some other factor is pointing you to either the blue car or the red car. 
and if you went back in time and with the exact same information, you would make the same choice. But if the if the if the information changed, if you went back in time and somehow altered the way things went, you may make that decision different. Is that what I'm to understand? In essence, yeah. So what makes you choose the red car or the blue car? Well, we, I mean, we can't know. But the, the foundation of determinism is, in some sense, grounded upon monism. That is, the idea that your mind and your brain are either identical or your, your mind is a process, uh, it's a product of your brain. So there's no ghost in the machine. There's no spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in Cartesian dualism, Descartes' idea was essentially that your 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 spirit was like a, was like a uh, a jockey riding you around, right, or <laughs> a little homunculus inside your head that was sort of directing your body of what to do. And you know, if you sustained a brain injury, uh, then maybe the controls didn't work as well. Uh, or if you were were drunk, then you know maybe your your the homunculus uh, wasn't getting all of the Define homunculus. <laughs> you said like three or four terms that I have no idea what they mean. I'm going along with it, but, but uh, I don't know what that is, sir. So uh, a, a homunculus is a... Um, a tiny guy that lives in your head. Essentially. It, it doesn't necessarily have to live in your head. And, and there are a couple of different definitions. But basically what it means is uh, something that represents uh, a human. It's uh, Latin for little man. So uh, if you've ever seen like a... Uh, a cartoon where they go inside somebody's head and inside that person's brain there's like a little dude at like a control station right yeah that's a homunculus okay 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 so th- that was essentially Descartes' idea. Uh, his idea was that uh, the spirit was controlling the body. The spirit was, in some sense, identical with the mind, uh, although uh, various philosophers have interpreted it differently. Uh, the spirit was identical with the mind. Uh, the spirit was non-physical. But it connected to the brain, I don't know, through the pineal gland or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and uh, it, the spirit made the decisions. And because the spirit was non-physical, it was free from causation. It could sort of sit above the physical universe and dictate your choices essentially at a whim. However, as our understanding of uh, neuroscience has advanced, we've generally come to the conclusion and... Um, uh, neurologists and uh, other neuroscientists are overwhelmingly in favor of the idea of monism. The, the mind is a product of the brain. And so your mind is physical. It could be an emergent property of a physical system. And so it must be part of the causal chain. So while ne- we can't necessarily determine why you picked the red car over the blue car, we can be fairly confident that there were causal contributors to that decision. And that if we replayed the tape of history, the same causal contributors would rise in your mind and contribute to your decision in the same way. So that makes sense to me for big decisions. Um, But I guess it makes less sense to me for little decisions. Like, when I arrived here today, Jem offered me some tea, and so I checked out his tea collection, and he mentioned having chocolate chili chai, which I enjoy. So I went to get that, and it was at the back of the cupboard, and I picked up a thing, and it said original chai. And I was like, well, that's fine. And that's what I ended up having. (laughs) But I had made it, I guess I had made a decision, and then I went, meh, this is fine too. So I guess if if we replayed that... 
and I had picked up the different jar, that would be the different thing that would continue it. If we replayed it, why would you have picked up? Well, that's the what I'm saying. Jar? Like, so the only yeah. difference would be that I pick up a different jar, and then I would make a different decision. But otherwise, I would always go meh. I would never go no. I want the other one. Right, but but you you're you're starting from the position of either having picked up a different jar or having picked up the same jar, mm-hmm. right? So what we have to determine is which you did in this scenario. And all determinism says is given uh, sort of a snapshot in time, what happens from then forward is uh, a product of what happened in the past and what is happening concurrently. So there's no possible timeline in which I picked up the jar of the wrong chai and went, no, I don't want this one, I will have the other one. Uh, I, I mean, you could have hypothetical timelines in the same way that you can construct a computer simulation of things that didn't actually happen. But, uh, you know, hypothetically, we could say something about what might have happened if you had made a different decision. But if we replay events right before you picked up a jar, mm-hmm. your hand was moving in a certain direction and your brain was making certain uh, certain uh, decisions about where to move its hand, and it happened to blindly fall on, you know, the wrong jar of chai, right? And so we can ask meaningful questions about why you happened to, your hand happened to land there or here, but all of those those questions would have answers that deal with physical causation. Does this theory mean that the theory where all of our decisions branch off and create different worlds, that doesn't exist? The, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics? Yes. Um, that's, a, that's a fair question, and actually we'll talk about uh, quantum a little bit later. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> but not really, uh, because uh, first of all, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics actually deals uh, not with decisions that we make, but with essentially possible states Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, Even if you you pull it up to that macro level, that could still happen. But whether or not you have meaningful control over it, uh, whether you have a a freedom of will in that situation is uh, entirely a different question. I just wanted to just touch on the, the question of larger decisions. Okay. Because I just wanted to go back to the point where, you know, if Ian is choosing the red or the blue car, I'm sure there's also... Uh, factors involved, like what's the gas mileage, what's the year, what's the price? Are they both identical or are they not? Because what I wanted to get at was just basically that if with all the information at our disposal at the time, we generally don't make the second or third choice decision. We make we make what's best for us at the time. So going back in time and replaying that, we would probably still make the same decision based on the information we had at the time. Right. I was more getting at the cars are identical. Okay. It comes down to your mood or or if you happen to pass a red house or a blue house on your way there and, okay oh, that's yeah. pretty or if you Be- had lunch yeah. or, or <laughs> yeah. if you had lunch yeah and sort of getting at what jem was saying about that that's one of the determinants is that yeah. your you passed a red house oh that house oh, is really that, pretty oh, that may factor into your into your decision subconsciously or whatever you want to say right. um mm-hmm. more so that's a determinant on your on your free will you don't have free will to choose the blue or the red the fact that you saw that red house takes that away from you. Jem, is that kind of sort of on the same lines? Uh, it, no. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I Essentially, it doesn't take anything away from you, but it, it goes in the, the heap of contributors. That, that When I was a kid, like I, I think I was 
maybe 14 or 15 when I stumbled, I was just thinking, and I stumbled upon the idea of determinism. And it wasn't until I hit university that I discovered there was actually a name for this philosophical concept. Because I was thinking, why did I make that decision? I was, I was sort of taking inventory of a decision that I'd made and thinking about all of the things that I thought about making that decision. Well, I remember thinking about this, but why did I think about that? Oh, yeah. And having come to this conclusion, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And I realized that this is, in essence, like a, like a computer program that I'm running. Mm -hmm. If somehow some other person were to be in this exact same situation with identical, you know, biology to me and an identical past experience and an identical set of options to consider, this person would be running through the same process. I mean, they would be me, essentially, at that point. But if, they, if their past life experience was the same, if their biology was the same, if they were in the same room with the same colored walls, everything was the same, they would make the same decision because that's how the universe works. I wasn't just sort of randomly spitting out a decision. Because I was considering things and weighing my options, that was a process that was following some sort of protocol. Hmm. You're right. I'm down with that. Ashlyn, why should we believe in free will? Why is determinism garbage? All right. So as we mentioned, Jem gave us homework. And Ian and Donna and I spent this evening commenting back and forth saying, yeah, I don't get it. No, I don't get it either. What's going on? <laughs> uh, but I did make a few notes. There was, there's a couple of pieces that I understood. So the most compelling argument for me is one that uh, in one of the articles that I read uh, that basically said, we know that we have free will because we can make decisions and we can sense ourselves making those decisions. Um, and so because we can think about the different options we have and, uh, and choose one or the other, we have like a, a very deep sense that we have free will. And so they're arguing that this is evidence for free will, which I don't know if that's super strong evidence. <laughs> it doesn't seem right, but... I mean a lot of people would, would make the same argument about a soul, right? Sure, I, yeah. I, I sense that I have this inner light that is part of me, that is a spark of the divine. Um, a, another point that I that I liked um, was the fact that we, that we have the capacity to self-monitor. Uh, the brain has the ability to watch what we're doing and then correct whatever we're doing to, uh, to maybe a different course or a a better decision um, and so that was given as, as evidence that we have the ability to change the pattern that we're in unlike maybe I don't know animals of a lower order that just go basically purely on instinct like oh the string is moving I must catch it <laughs> uh, or you know terrible things will happen and my humans will die I don't know <laughs> um, but we have that ability to look at what we're doing and change what we're doing based on what we're monitoring. And so that was also presented as, as evidence of free will. Um, I don't understand philosophy speak. It, <laughs> it goes like right over my head as soon as I start reading it. Well, that, like, that's an interesting point, the, the, this idea that we can self-monitor. But uh, I, like, I'll, I'll tell you, I've done some work on artificial neural nets. Mm -hmm. Nothing remotely as complex, like hundreds of orders of magnitude less complex than the human mind. But you can have recurrent neural nets. 
And what that means is uh, it's a neural network where some of its outputs feed back into its inputs. Mm -hmm. And so an artificial neural network is a deterministic process. You know, if you give it certain inputs, the outputs will always be the outputs. Yeah. And uh, uh, what evidence we have at hand suggests that biological neural networks are the same. Obviously, the inputs are far more complex and there are various mushy things going around in the brain. But given all of the same mushy elements, the same mushy output will happen. Um, so we can watch ourselves. The decisions that we make, for example, or the actions that we take, those are also inputs. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the example that was given uh, was... Uh, it says, in many contexts of our lives, introspective knowledge is taken very seriously. When you go to a doctor and he asks you, are you in pain? And you say yes. And he says, where is the pain? And you say, it's in my knee. The doctor doesn't say, why? You can't know. This is not public evidence. I will now get verifiable direct evidence where you hurt. Uh, because your evidence is very good evidence. Uh, so even though it only comes from inside you that my knee hurts or I can make this choice, um, that doesn't mean it's bad evidence. <laughs> I, I guess, but that, but that is, in some sense, externally verifiable. And we also don't trust lots of, like, we, as skeptics, we know that you can't trust, like, I saw a ghost. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess ghosts exist then. Exactly. <laughs> oh, okay, so I teach kids from grades one to six uh, science workshops after school. It's my day job. Um, and a, a kid came up to me the other day just while I was doing something else and said, do you believe in ghosts? And I said, no, I don't believe in ghosts. And he said, why not? I said, because as far as I know, there's no evidence for them. He says, well, I have evidence for them. And I said, well, if that's true, you should uh, apply and get one of these prizes. Because if you can prove ghosts, like there's people who will give you lots of money. And he said, oh, well, it's not very good evidence. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, you mean I just, evidence, evidence. Yeah, I, I liked that he had that capacity to look at it and go like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> Funny how a lot of people don't have that ability. No, yeah. yeah, but this, you know, second grade child was able to be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> anyway, I mean, and I, and I want to point out that Jem has convinced me. His talk at Skepticamp talked me into the fact that I have no free will and the fact makes me like deeply sad. <laughs> um, so... He, he assigned me talking on behalf of free will, but I like I find it very difficult to believe now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe one of our kind listeners will, will come to your rescue. <laughs> talk me out of, yeah. I would like to believe that I am not just a machine, although it seems very convincing at the time. Pinocchio is broken. Its strings have been cut. Ian? Nope. Oh, the measure <laughs> of a man! When Riker, that, that, uh, when Riker, um, I was gonna, no, I was gonna say Measure of Man. That was season two. Season two. Yeah, you skipped season two because yeah, of Pulaski, right? Right. Season two is dead to me. <laughs> but yeah, Pulaski was annoying. She always called him Data. Yeah, yeah. She couldn't get his name What's right. What's the difference? One is my name. The other is not. <laughs> anyway, something that almost convinces me uh, is this argument, where it basically says we haven't found anything in nature yet that exhibits agent causation so that the thing in nature has caused something to happen without input but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist <laughs> well yeah just because we haven't found anything that can be its own agent of of cause uh maybe we could still find something that yeah again it's kind of a weak argument but it was there
Yeah. It's not impossible <laughs> that we have free will. Exactly. <laughs> you can't prove a note. Uh, yeah, that was like, I don't know. These people are making arguments that sound good, but they also sound like creationist arguments. So, Yeah, one of the, one of the best sources, actually, I found uh, of less technical arguments in favor of free will was uh, uh, papers written by objectivists, <laughs> because uh, obviously when you understand uh, objectivism, uh, which is sort of Ayn Rand's philosophy, uh, where the, the self is, is ultimate, you sort of have to have free will for any of it to make sense, because if you are doing really well because you worked hard and pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and somebody else is poor because they didn't work hard and they, you know, they had some personal failing which prevented them from getting ahead, then that idea only makes sense if it could have been otherwise. So obviously you have, a, you have, a, you have an interest in, in preserving the idea of free will. Okay. So sorry for sending you to read Objectivist Session. Well, see, I don't think I'm being a very good advocate for the existence of free will. So if anybody has like any better proof, please send it to me. I would like to not be sad. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. So uh, Donna and Ian, we were talking earlier about how determinism is often held up as incompatible with free will. There are people who believe that the two are compatible. You know what they're called? What are they called? They're called compatibilists. <laughs> Isn't that shocking? Yeah. <laughs> it is shocking. And I think they believe in compatibilism. Goddamn philosophers. So what is compatibilism, Ian? I... <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I have no earthly idea. Uh, Donna... <laughs> May I may I just take a uh, just brief moment to mention here that that I feel really old because I'm the only one in the room with paper in my hand. Yep. <laughs> everyone else is a, everyone else yeah everyone else is a little blue blue screen in front of them and I have paper. Whoa. It's okay. Well, it's just like just like Elon on the reality check who's always <laughs> shuffling papers. Yeah. yeah, but you look prepared, whereas I just look like I'm screwing around on my phone. Yeah, actually, actually, that is what I thought you were doing earlier. The, oh, she's checking out her posts or whatever there. Anyway, no. Um, yeah, Ashton's always Facebooking during the podcast. <laughs> it's true. I'm not denying it. Compatibilists maintain that determinism is compatible with free will. So they're basically saying that even though this is a part of a causal chain, it, it is compatible with free will. Now, this is where my understanding stops because I don't quite understand how they work that, but... That's apparently what compatibilism is. That's all I got out of an hour <laughs> of YouTube videos last night, plus uh, some research. So uh, so one of the uh, most well-known compatibilists, uh, probably due to his writing popular books on the subject, is Daniel Dennett. In, in a sense, this is a definitional problem. Uh, most people that I know agree, in principle at least, with s some amount of the determinist position. They agree that uh, things that happen in the world have an impact on the decisions that we make. And indeed, D Daniel Dennett points out, uh, he's a, a philosopher of mind, um, he, he points out that we wouldn't want it any other way. You know, we want causal input on our decision-making process. Because if our decisions were totally unbound from things that we were seeing and learning about the universe and things that had happened in the past, we would essentially be making decisions at random, right? If you are about to cross the street and you stop and you think, should I cross the street? You probably want to take input from, A, you know, 
whether your parents taught you to look both ways <laughs> uh, or, you know, left, society right, taught you to, yeah, yeah left, right, left. <laughs> um, w- w- B, you know, whether there is a car coming, you know, uh, whether there is uh, a light indicating that you should or shouldn't walk, whether there are icy conditions that might make it difficult for people to stop or difficult for you to move quickly. You know, we want to take input from our surroundings and we, we recognize that all of these things will inform, maybe not determine, but inform and influence our final decision. We don't want that decision-making process to be totally divorced from the physical universe, right? Yep. I think so. I would like my decisions to have some basis in reality. Otherwise, I'd be a homeopath. (laughs) (laughs) Well, aren't we used to a determinist universe, too, that, you know, everything usually follows the laws of gravity and whatnot? Usually. Usually. (laughs) So most most people I know at least agree in principle that that, that we want uh, some form of causal influence in our decision making process, but they feel that that influence is compatible with free will, and th- the core reason is they define free will differently. Instead of defining free will in this, as I mentioned at the top, libertarian or contra-causal sense, a will that is not determined by causal antecedents, they'll define free will as simply an unconstrained exercise of will. So freely exercising their will. A free will just means that you are allowing your normal, potentially causal, decision-making process to proceed unimpeded. So you're not... Uh, under the influence of narcotics, uh, you're not intoxicated in some way, you haven't been hit in the head, uh, you know, you haven't uh, received a tamping rod through the front of your face, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a damaging part of your brain. Shout out to my good buddy Phineas Gage, who's a, a classic case. I, I don't know if you're familiar, Ian, with Phineas Gage, but he was nope. a, a, ra- a railway worker uh, more than 100 years ago who was using a tamping rod to uh, to compact explosives. And when he struck the explosives, they went off and the, this iron rod shot through his face and came out the back of his head, uh, destroyed one of his eyes, and it caused severe brain damage. And it's uh, while the details of the case are, uh, are disputed to some degree, uh, most uh, agree that after he sustained this massive injury to his brain, he was a totally different person. You know, uh, he swore a lot more. He made rash decisions. He basically behaved like a family member of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, And so this is held up as evidence that physical damage to the brain causes a change in personality. So who we are and the way we make decisions is fundamentally a product of our brain. Makes sense to me. So back to compatibilism, um, com- most compatibilists will describe free will not as contra-causal or libertarian, but they'll describe it simply as you're able to exercise your will to its fullest natural extent. And th- th- this is similar to the way the justice system defines free will. You know, they recognize that if somebody has drugged you or if, you know, you're coming off, uh, you know, a 40-hour shift or you've sustained a head injury— or if you have um, uh, a mental illness or uh, some sort of handicap, then your decision-making process is going to be compromised. Then you can be found um, not criminally responsible for your actions if you're uh, undergoing trial, for example, because your will wasn't free to this extent. So then doesn't this sort of seem like the sort of obvious 
I don't know, I don't want to say definition, but so far what, what from what we've been talking about free will, this compatibilism seems the most universal, I guess. It's, yeah, sure. Uh, because, it's, because it because it sort of speaks. Compatible. Yeah, well, yeah, it speaks. So then I guess my question is, like, where does all the other arguments come from then? I guess we'll get to that, won't we? <laughs> well, see, compatibilism, as I said, it's really just a definitional problem. You know, I like Dennett. Uh, I think he's probably smarter. He's definitely better educated in this field than I am. But I have to disagree with him a little bit about this compatibilism thing. Welcome to the fundamental arrogance of podcasting. I'm not disagreeing with anything substantive he has to say, but uh, it's simply a matter of labels. I, I can't bring myself to call what he believes free will to be free will. I, it seems like it just serves to muddy the waters because I think so many people, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, accept this libertarian ideal of free will. And as we were talking about with objectivism earlier, they, they will lay blame at people because they're lazy or because they don't make the same superior decisions. Uh, and that gives them sort of an excuse to say, well, they, you know, th they could have done differently. They could have uh, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And so it gives us leave to blame people for not making the same choices that we make. Hmm. And I think that when you use this compatibilist definition of free will, it makes it unclear which version of free will you're talking about. And so it can give cover to these sort of, I guess, free will fundamentalists. <laughs> um, but maybe I'm the one out to lunch here. Uh, I'm curious what my fellow panelists think. Does this compatibilist free will seem like free will to you? Like, Ian, you seem to, to think so, right? Yeah. yeah. It, because, because you're bringing in your own, like you say, sort of your own natural way of thinking into the idea um but making the decisions based on on your previous uh, uh knowledge and experience then yeah you're still you're still making the ultimate decision one way or the other you may have you may have all this information um prior you you saw the red house you mm -hmm. checked the gas mileage on the car so on mm -hmm. and so forth you've done all that that's part of your decision making process either external or you know subconsciously but uh and then at the end of the day, you still choose red or blue. Um, so you still have the choice to go hmm, blue or whatever it is. So that's, it seems the most natural, the most obvious that it's, you know, I, I think that, that, it, that, it, that this seems the most. So, so even if uh, you could rewind the tape of the universe and it would play out the exact same way, you're still okay calling that free will? Well, yes, when you rewind a VCR tape, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus still dies at the end, yes. So... <laughs> I, I, Spoiler alert, man! Oh, sorry, Come on, man. yeah, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, okay. Uh, looking for some sort of other movie to draw from. Cosmos. We've got the Teddy Ruxpin uh, DVDs over there. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. If you rewound the time of uh, that, that, yes, yes, it would. Unfortunately, Teddy Ruxpin still dies at the end. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> he gets nailed to a cross. I'm pretty sure. I may be getting my references confused. Ashlyn, does this uh, does this seem like free will to you? Not really, but I don't know. It's it's better. I, I don't know. It's not even better because it's the exact same position. Like, yes, you have all of the external input, but yes, you're still going to make the same decision given that it's external input every single time. 
But one of the things that Dennett focuses on is that that decision is still fundamentally your decision. Yeah. As with determinism, what you get is a guarantee that any action that you take, any choice that you make, is perfectly consistent with your character. Uh, and it's hard to understand how you could get that sort of guarantee if your actions were not uh, determined by, you know, prior conditions. So with a libertarian version of free will, you get no guarantee that your actions are consistent with, you know, who you are as a person, which is kind of weird. And, and yeah. one of the things that he... But I don't think that's not what the other position says either. Right. It's your decision. You're just, you're going to make that decision every single time. Donna? Well, I have, I guess, the advantage of having heard our wonderful speaker, August Berkshire, and I've heard his talk on free will twice now. And I'm going back to a couple of things he said that I can remember from that talk. And one of those is the last time he spoke on it, he talked about some research that um, the neuroscientists are doing, which rather demonstrates in a way that the decision, that the, the parts of their brain lit up before we actually made the conscious decision. So they had people in an experiment, you know, choose with your left hand or right hand or whatever it was. The parts of the brain involved lit up before that they actually made that physical choice to do that. There are a couple of different experiments, yeah. but the details aren't super important. But yeah, so what they were asked to do is to make a to make a choice to move either their left hand, say, or their right hand. And then they were asked to report when they made that choice. They were asked to say, I made the choice, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what the experiment has found is that they would see uh, patterns in a brain. I think it was on an fMRI scan. Mm -hmm. They would see patterns corresponding with making the decision that occurred well before the subjects reported that they made the choice. And so one of the interpretations of that result is that the feeling that we have of making a decision is a result of our brain having made a decision. And then th that sort of lower part of the brain says, oh, by the way, you made a decision. And then we tell a story about how, oh yeah, we made a decision now. And so it is at that level not even really anything that we could call us making the decision. We're just hearing, oh yeah, we made a decision. Great. <laughs> and telling ourselves the story about how we made it. Yeah, and that's part of the argument against free will, mm -hmm. is, that, is that our brains have already made this decision before we've been aware of it. Right. Um, you know, I, I actually don't have a problem accepting the idea that we don't have free will. I'd it's never really thought about it much. It's like, does it really make a difference to me or my life? But it's still our brain, though. Yeah, yeah, it's still our brain. <laughs> it's not someone else's brain making that decision, then telling the lower brain that decision was made, and then the lower brain tells your higher brain, exactly. hey, you made that decision. It's not like the, the alien brain is making the exactly. ultimate decision. Yeah, it's not like it's being controlled by Spock's brain. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm also considering, too, that, that I'm sure that part of it is the fact that our brain is already at work. It may be subconsciously below our conscious level, but our brain is still... Firing all those those neurons at, at you know what kind of speed, Jim? We're talking oh, ridiculous. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> electrochemical, like it's it's very fast. <laughs> so is it possible that we don't have the tools to measure that yet? Yeah, yeah. And and those experiments specifically are disputed to some degree, but I think that they're fairly solid. But they're you know it's not we don't have to hang our hats on no. on those experiments either. There's there's but plenty we, of you were saying that you don't mind. That I don't mind. No I don't. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. particularly bother me. To me, it seems like this is saying that our brains are basically just machines, like we were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. That it doesn't matter, given 
an input will always going to have the same output, just like a computer. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a little sad to me. But the way I think of it, though, is that is that it's constantly being adjusted by new input, wouldn't it? It's not a closed yeah. system. Yeah. We're always still... we're always taking in more input and making choice or making adjustments based on new information. And, and I'm glad that I'm a really sophisticated machine, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still a machine. Yeah. Yeah. I I get what you're saying, Ashlyn, but. I don't know. It gives me it gives me hope a little bit because I you know I work with computers for a living and uh, while I have a specialization in AI I you know I don't do the I don't do general AI I do you know expert systems and stuff like that so this gives me hope that like there's no reason that we couldn't come up with artificial intelligences you know as a kid I always wanted you know a computer buddy. <laughs> Because I was a nerd and I didn't have many real friends. <laughs> Hello, Jim. It's a sexy computer buddy. <laughs> it's supposed to be Hal. Oh, yeah, okay. But uh, I, my throat hurts, so I, my impression-making device is, uh, is faulty. I'm sorry, Jim. I'm afraid I can't do that. There it is. That's better. Good job. Okay, so so maybe this is a good opportunity then to uh, throw to our interview. We actually have an interview today with August Berkshire, who recently spoke at a meeting of the Humanist Atheists Agnostics of Manitoba on the subject of free will and determinism. And HAM President Donna Harris. Hi, Donna. Hi. Uh, had the opportunity to speak with him after his talk for this very podcast. We'll bring that interview to you now. August Berkshire is a member of the Board of Directors of Minnesota Atheists and the chair of their Speakers Bureau. In addition to his own group in the Twin Cities, he has also served with or been a member of Atheist Alliance International, Camp Quest, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, the Secular Student Alliance, the Center for Inquiry, American Atheists, and the Humanists of Minnesota. Thank you, August Berkshire, for uh, joining us today on the Life, the Universe, and Everything Else podcast. I'm Donna Harris, and I'm going to be talking to August about his presentation, The Illusion of Free Will and Its Impact on Moral Responsibility. Yes, thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so the first question I have to ask you is, how long did it take you to develop this presentation that you've given? Well, I'm 55 now, and I think <laughs> in, in my late teens, I had an inkling that free will was probably an illusion. And I just kind of thought about it off and on over the years. And But it wasn't until about two years ago that Sam Harris's book came out that I started thinking about it again and I started reading it. And I thought, yeah, I think that, I think that. And I was just agreeing with so much of it and had thought of a lot of it myself. And about one of the few things he had thought of that I hadn't was the supernatural and free will, because I don't really think about the supernatural much, so I hadn't thought about that angle. But as far as, yeah, I accepted that it was a materialistic universe and uh, naturalism, cause and effect, so how could there possibly be free will? So I, about two years ago, I started putting it into a talk, and uh, I've polished it up to what you saw tonight. Okay. What was your, what was your idea or impression of what free will was all this time? Like, what was your definition of free will? Well, it's what they call libertarian free will, which is somehow an uncaused free will of a thought or an action or an urge that wasn't dependent on what came before it. That the thing that came before it didn't necessarily cause that, that you could somehow have thought of something different. 
and the more you think about it, um, you couldn't have. You couldn't have done other than what you did. Everything led up to where you are now, and you and it was all like dominoes, and there was no way you could break into those dominoes. I used to think about that. Okay, how do you break, break into a set of tumbling dominoes? Well, you could have another domino come at it from the side, but then that would itself be from a set of tumbling dominoes, and it's still a chain of cause and effect that you can't break into. So whatever thought pops into your head or whatever you decide to do, you have no control over it. Now, you'll have to forgive me because I am a base <laughs> amateur when it comes to thinking about, about this philosophical idea of free will. Yeah. So my impression of it would be um, that I can decide to do anything I want in the universe tomorrow. If I decided now, at, at my age, to become an astronaut, that wouldn't be possible. That You just can't go out and do anything you want because of what's gone on before. Now, am I on the right track when I start thinking that way? That is how a lot of people think of free will. Yeah. But what you're talking about is being hindered by outside things, uh, a lack of athleticism, perhaps, or uh, something's getting in your way. So you say, oh, I, I have free will to go get a candy bar because well, nothing is stopping me. Nothing's in my way. I've got the money in my pocket. So a lot of people think of free will that way. Is, okay. Is, is, is there anything standing in your way? Uh, or I can't go get a candy bar. I don't have enough money. There's no candy machine within walking distance. People often think of that as free will, but that's compatibilist free will. And it's not real free will. Whether or not you have the idea to get a candy bar or want to get a candy bar, that's not in your control. And so compatibilist free will is, is there anything in your way from exercising your unfree will? So compatibilist free will, external things are not free will. Okay. <laughs> you kind of follow okay. that. So, whether, okay, let's go back to the candy bar. Whether or not you're hungry, you can't control that. What ideas pop into your head as, as for things to eat is based on what you've experienced in the past. Okay. If there's some exotic Chinese dish that you know nothing about, that option's not going to come into your head. Right. So options that will come into your head will be from your past. Not everything. Your, our memories are faulty, so not everything you've ever eaten is going to suddenly right. come to mind. Right. And maybe what kind of thing will come to mind might be based on how much money you have, whether you want something sweet or not. Where you are. Whether yeah, you have you, a car. Right, right. You'll suddenly, you'll suddenly take account of where you are. But Although these are starting to be external things, but they do start oh, to okay, winnow okay. your options. The okay. Options will pop into your head, and then you'll start winnowing them by how much do they cost, how far do I have to go to get it. Okay. You can't control what options pop into your head, and you do a cost-benefit analysis on each one. The cost of flying to China is too great. You're not going to do that option. It's, you don't have enough money to afford a lobster dinner, so that's a cost-benefit analysis that fails, and you don't get lobster. But this is all your mind weighing these things, and it's not using free will. It's just a computer program weighing these things. So you can't control what options pop into your head, and you really are. You think you're freely choosing among the options. But there are certain criteria you're using to weigh those options, and that's not in your control either. It's all cause and effect. There's no such thing as an uncaused cause as far as we know. Right. So I understand that from 
the physics level that you're talking about, that right. there has to be a cause and which yeah. follows. Um, you also talked about determinism and indeterminism. Could you just give me a brief explanation again of those? A determinist... Yeah, determinism is strict cause and effect. Okay. This, then that. This, always this, then that. And if, and if everything in the universe was strictly cause and effect, then if you ran the universe again, you'd get exactly the same result. Right. Now, there do seem to be elements that are indeterministic. Okay. That you can't predict the outcome. Maybe the outcome is purely chaotic, random, whatever. Uh, radioactive decay, uncertainty principle, uh, quantum mechanics, things like that. At the very tiny level, some of this stuff enters in. First of all, our minds don't operate on that level. Um, okay. Our, our minds are very deterministic. Otherwise, one thought couldn't orderly continue to the next one, and you couldn't carry out your wishes. It would just it would just too, be too much chaos. Okay. If indeterminism was reigning at the kind of macro level in your brain. Okay. But even if there was the indeterminism at the atomic level was playing some part in your brain. Because it's indeterministic, you can't control it. I mean, that's the definition of you not being able to determine it. So you can't have free will with determinism, and you can't have it with indeterminism either because you can't control indeterminism. So there can't possibly be free will. Okay. Now, I understand a deterministic universe would be, um, I'm trying to think of an example that I can think of from science or, or nature or something like that that would sound... Um, well, sort it's, of it's good that you bring up science because we know that the universe is mostly deterministic, at least at the, at the macro level, above the atomic level, because if it wasn't mostly deterministic, the same science experiments wouldn't give us the same results. Right. That's what I was thinking when you mentioned that. So that um, if water always boils at a certain temperature, right. it's not going to change. It's not going to be different next time. It's always the same. Right. Because right? it's a deterministic universe. Okay. So when you talked about that, you also said that why, why doesn't determinism have to operate almost all of the time? So, is, so can you talk, can you speak to why it doesn't have to be all the time? Are there occasions when, when it doesn't operate? There could be. It just, uh, at least on the, above the atomic level, it does seem to operate almost all the time. There, I'm just sort of leaving it out that there might be times, <laughs> okay. there might be times based on, a top, on stuff that happens at an atomic level where things are indeterminate. But they don't affect us on the larger scale. So that's what I was saying. And, and in the end, it doesn't matter because determinism or indeterminism, we, we can't get free will from either one. Okay. And most of it, I guess, comes down to once we've talked about the idea that free will is impossible because mm -hmm. we live in a determinist world, mm -hmm. right? And we live in a natural world. Right. We are, we are presupposing that there are no, there's nothing supernatural there's nothing spiritual out there that's not... Right, and that includes our brains and our thoughts. Right. See, because right. a lot of people think that somehow our brains are an exception. They'll accept cause and effect with everything else in the world. You hit a pool ball, and that ball hits another ball, and it hits another ball. Very Cause and effect is really easy to see there. They'll accept it everywhere, but somehow they think our brains are an exception. But our brains are not. Our brains are just electricity and chemicals. And that's it. There's no ghost in the machine. There's no spirit up there. And if it's all material, our thoughts are physical things. Our urges are physical things. And if that's the case, then they're subject to the same laws of physics as everything else in the universe. And your brain is operating, your thoughts are operating on cause and effect. And if there's any sort of 
indeterministic misfiring where you some little bit of chaos in your brain uh, you can't control that so there's no free will there either okay now I got this question ahead of time because um, because some people were, were rooting for me to conduct this interview so I have a question I'm not even sure if I actually understand it myself but I'm gonna throw it your way doesn't quantum indeterminacy undermine determinism could that lead to free will in some way I don't even know what I just said. But. Yeah, no, I'm, and I've talked a little about this. Like I say, <laughs> quantum, I said quantum indeterminacy uh, occurs. It doesn't seem to affect it on uh, above the atomic level. It doesn't really seem to play a lot of big part in our brains. But suppose it did. Suppose there was some indeterminate firing in our, in our brains at the quantum level that affected our thoughts. Uh, in my talk, I list six loopholes that people think can give us free will and that's one of the loopholes people think can okay. give it free will but okay. we can't control that quantum indeterminacy if we could it wouldn't be indeterminate so we can't control it so it's not an avenue for free will it's an avenue for chaotic will unfortunately we don't okay. act chaotically most of the time but you know there may be small it may have some influence in our brains but it's not an avenue for free will okay okay now some philosophers like Daniel Dennett Think that free will is compatible with naturalism. What do you think? Well, that's what I'm talking about. The compatibilist. He's called the compatibilist. Okay. He redefines free will, and he actually would agree with me in my definition. It's called libertarian free will, which is to say there there is no such thing as libertarian free will. There's no such thing as an uncaused will. All your thoughts, all your desires, are from a chain of cause and effect, and you can't help it. And what he's talking about, and others. Or talking about compatibilists, they're saying, well, okay, you can't control what thoughts come into your head, what urges you have, even what you do, you can't. But is there anything standing in your way? And if there isn't, then you have the so-called free will to ex express your desire, express your thought. And that's not really free will. That's not having any barriers to expressing your unfree will. If you can follow that. <laughs> okay, I'm giving him a really strange, kind of little confused look. Yeah. So you can't control your hunger. You can't control which ideas for food pop into your head. You can't control which one you eventually decide uh, to pick. All that's no free will. Right. And, and then, then it would actually agree with that. But then, is there somebody, say I see a candy machine across the way. And can I freely walk over there and I have enough money and get the candies? Now he's, Dennett is counting that as free will. Or is there somebody standing in my way that's going to wrestle me to the ground and prevent me? Then, then I can't exercise my will. So, he, of course, that is compatible with determinism and indeterminism because it doesn't deal with either one. Uh, you st I'm just saying whether or not you can exercise your unfree will you still didn't choose what you that you wanted to go get that candy bar um, there's only a question of whether there's somebody standing in your way to get it or not and that it is important whether there's someone standing in your way or not but that's doesn't get to the root of where the idea came from in the first place you had no control over that okay so I will accept the premise that there is no free will. I, I, I'm accepting that even though I obviously I had to make that decision, right? 
No, you did. <laughs> well, well you, yes, in a way you did. You couldn't help but reach that conclusion. I can't help but reach that conclusion. Yeah. So what was so darn good about having free will anyway? Why would we want to have free will? What, what's the benefit? There is none. Well, we don't have it. Uh, in fact, I mean, if it really existed, it would be probably chaotic. It's hard to even imagine what it would be. Hmm. I think it's a good thing that we don't have free will. And in my talk, I list a lot of benefits to realizing that it's an illusion. Okay, because otherwise we just couldn't do whatever we wanted all the time. There would be no reason. We'd so, never get anything done. Yeah, it's better that we're doing things for a reason than that we're doing them randomly. Right. Uh, <laughs> it leads to a much more orderly civilization that way. Yeah, I can't imagine a civilization where everybody just goes on the roads in a car and just says, okay, drive. And everybody just decides whatever, you know, whatever they, they, where they want to go or up on a sidewalk or anything like that. I don't think that would be, that yeah. would be useful. So, yeah, at the end of my talk about, I have a list of benefits of realizing that there's no free will. Okay. To help us be less judgmental and more forgiving towards ourselves and other people. Because you realize the, you can't help what you did. You did the best you could at the time. So if it turns out in hindsight not to have been a good decision, you can forgive yourself. Just learn from the experience. But, you know, don't beat yourself up too much about it. And if someone else does something bad, realize that they couldn't help it either. Now, this does get into responsibility. If there's no free will, there's no responsibility. Okay. Uh, which frightens a lot of people. But that's the logical consequence. However... We have a right to protect ourselves uh, based on practicality, not morality. So if someone does harm, we can protect ourselves, put them in jail. Right. That's the practice. So we, we jail people for practical reasons, not moral reasons. And But for that reason, we, ju we can judge the action but not the person. Because the person couldn't help what they did. But the action is, is either helpful or harmful, and we can judge that. Mm. And if it's harmful... We can protect ourselves and we can try to rehabilitate the person so they don't do harmful things in the future. So now we're on to the moral responsibility part of right. not having free will. Right. So no one is morally responsible, but um, even without free will, there are still consequences to your actions. Okay. Um, so if I you know, punch somebody in the face, even if I couldn't help it because there's no free will, there's still a consequence that I'm hurting that person. And he or others will try to subdue me uh, so I don't further injure somebody. They'll try to figure out why I did it, because if they can figure out why, then maybe that will help me not hit somebody else again. Okay. If I have some absolutely uncontrollable rage that they, the people in the room can't control, maybe they'll call the medics and they'll strap me down and they'll give me drugs. And, so there's still consequences to our actions. They don't go away just because there's no free will. Right. And we still get feedback from our actions that'll help us let us know whether we're doing something pro-social or anti-social. And, and that's where this all um, speaks to me is because of the idea that it is all part of our evolutionary past. Mm -hmm. We have evolved as a social species. Right. That's, that's what saves us. Yeah. See, when there's no free will and there's no God, well, what's in control? Evolution is in control. The forces of nature and the particular force of nature called evolution, that's what's in control. And we, it shapes us as a social species 
And yes, we compete with each other and we have conflict, but we also cooperate. And in the long run, cooperation is going to win out over competition. Okay. And we see this as a natural instinct because you want to make friends. It's better to have friends than not to have friends. And this is quite obvious, but that's part of evolution. And if you have a fight with a friend, uh, well, it's not easy to make a good friend. And you're going to try to make it up with that friend rather than just discard a long-term friendship and try to find a, a new friend. You'll, right. And reputation is important. So if you're a helpful person, you'll have a good reputation and people are more likely to help you when you need help. Right. So there is no, actually there's no such thing as altruism either. There's no free will, there's no God, there's no altruism. Uh, we always do what we want to do. And especially if there's no free will, there can't be any altruism because you really are just doing whatever the program tells you to do. But we are programmed, for the most part, most of us, to try to get along because it benefits us selfishly to get along with the group. Right. Okay. Yeah, at first you did throw me with that there's no altruism as well, and then I, and I started realizing that's where the cooperation yeah. kicks in. It, it, it may seem to be an altruistic act, but it does actually benefit you because it benefits your relationship with the group around you. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So benefits to no free will, uh, being less judgmental, more forgiving. Um, this is an interesting one. You continue to accept constructive criticism because it might help you improve, but you don't take anything personally anymore. Yeah, I think that's hard to do. It is I hard, think that's to, hard do, to do. Yeah, but it's slowly sinking into me because the person uh, can't help but have the opinion that they do. They can't help it, so why take it personally? But okay. you can still listen to what they say, even though they can't help what they're saying. Do I have to like it? They might have a valid point. <laughs> no, no, you don't have. You have to, but if it's from a trusted source who has uh, given you good advice in the past. Okay, then you might want to listen, or it's from some authority that you respect. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's some, you know, raving lunatic on the corner giving you the advice to repent or you're going to go to hell, you can just dismiss <laughs> that. Again, you don't take it personally, but it's not constructive criticism. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. I always thought that, that um, carrots were better than sticks anyway. If you're trying to, you know, ha help others and try and give them that feedback that it's always better to, to point out the benefits mm -hmm. to behavior rather than provide punishments or dissuasions rather than you know try and you know persuade yeah, they, people they both work but the benefits is better yeah yeah um, see another benefit of no free will is it helps us let go of feelings of hatred revenge and retribution because you, it's hard to hate a person if they couldn't help but do what they did I mean you cannot like what they did but is to hate them as people doesn't really make sense or feeling revenge is good revenge evolved to help us catch somebody to really motivate us to catch someone who did bad things but once we catch them we should try to let go of feelings of revenge because they really couldn't help what they did and once we've caught them we don't need that motivation anymore and then we can work on the rehabilitation part well well doesn't that revenge though depend on what actually happens to them when you catch them like if you manage to to i don't know if you give them a bit of a, you know, a slap above the head or something, or if you help send them to prison or something like that, that would be part of your revenge, wouldn't it be? Not that that some justice has yeah. been done in that well, sense. Well, the only thing that makes sense is rehabilitation. Well, to protect society, that makes sense. Right. But once you've caught the person, 
then punishment only makes sense if it's going to make them a better person in some way. If you overdo it on the punishment, you make them more bitter. We know the story, right? Mm-hmm. People come out more from prison more hardened than when they went in. Well, that's right. kind of stupid, and that's motivated by a sense of wanting to get revenge and punish these people. Whereas once we've caught them and made ourselves safe, protected society, all efforts should go toward rehabilitation. And that's, by experiment, we'll see what works. And maybe some people can't be rehabilitated, and so they can't ever be let back into the public. Right, right. Because those are people who are probably genuine psychopaths, that there is something... Right, and they can't help being a psychopath, but then again, we don't have to tolerate them in society. We, can, we have a right to protect ourselves. Okay. But we don't have a right to, to treat them cruelly, because they really can't help but be the psychopaths they are. Right. But that would... That would then that speaks to a, a faulty wiring in the brain? Right. In that sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. So I, I can agree with that, actually. I think that's a, that's a decent... That's a thing. So, so we don't have any free will. No, not that I can see. Okay. And I'm not, I don't have any, like, a priori or preference either way. I mean, if we had it, we do. If we don't, we don't. I don't, I'm having a, uh, that's one thing I realize is, um, I'm having a really good life. And I'm really lucky in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, you know, some effort went into it. And if you take, if I take my ego out of it, then does it really matter if this good life is because some brilliant free will decisions I've made? or a great program running in my head. It really doesn't matter because they're both giving me this good life. And I'd rather trust the program actually than trust free will because my free will could go astray. But if I've got a really good program of self-preservation and cooperation and it's making me fit in with society, get along with people and, and brings out the best in me, that's a pretty good program. And I'm content to sort of step back and let it run not that I have a choice I mean it's going to run anyway but right right I don't, I'm, I'm content not to have to put my ego into it so there's no sense then getting all nihilistic and saying oh we don't have any free will well that that's it tomorrow I'm just gonna stay in bed I'm gonna put the covers over my head <laughs> and I'm not gonna get up again because what's the point right what and, is, what's and the point it, with life then it's kind of a fatalism and that was my reaction at first too I think it's uh, a lot of people's reaction is when they hear that there's no free will. It's oh, why bother? It's all set in stone, or nothing I do matters, or anything like that. But it's really hard to do nothing. We're, we're evolutionarily programmed uh, to do something. Doing nothing is usually a very poor survival strategy, <laughs> and being curious about the world and investigating it is usually a good survival strategy. So it's we're we're motivated to do something. And I'm just enjoying the journey because I, if, uh, if I had complete knowledge of the world, I would know everything that's going to happen. I would know everything I was going to think. I would know where everyone's going to be, what everyone's going to say. Like uh, the philosopher, mathematician, Laplace talked about an omniscient being. If you had complete knowledge, you would know that, but none of us do. So I don't know what my next thought's going to be. I don't know who's going to walk into that door and I might find them interesting. So life has in store for all of us lots of surprises that can delight us and it's a wonderful adventure and I don't care if, if there's free will or not it's still a wonderful adventure and what I do does matter I can do things even though they're not of my own free will I can do things to try to make the world better and when I see that I might have done something to help another person or society in general 
I'm evolutionarily programmed to have a little release of uh, endorphins or something, and I feel good about it, and I, it's a nice feedback loop that evolution has set up, and I enjoy mm -hmm. it. I don't worry that, okay, you know, I really couldn't control what I did, and I can't control this feeling good. I just enjoy it. I don't. I don't overanalyze it. I can, and I and I just did, but I usually don't. <laughs> well, I think that's always a good thing for us to, to take some time and to just kind of learn and explore our horizons and learn about these kind of topics. Honestly, I've not I've never studied philosophy or anything before in my life, so I really haven't given these things too much thought. Mm -hmm. But I think that's always a very good exercise for us to to sit back and learn something new, have some new thoughts, and you know just take advantage of the brains that we do have. So if I wanted to learn more about this topic of free will, anything like that, is there anything you'd recommend? Any books or videos or? Well, let's see, there's, of course, there's Sam Harris's book on free will that's pretty good. It's a oh, very okay. thin book called Free Will. Okay. Believe it or not, there's a Canadian fellow that's pretty good and he blogs a lot. August is grabbing the book out of his briefcase here right it is, now. Here it is. Okay. It's called Breaking the Free Will Illusion for the Betterment of Humankind. And the author is Trick Slattery, and Trick is short for Patrick. I was going to guess that. Who names their children Trick? Yeah, all these, it's, all these it's got days an apostrophe before the uh, I see that, word yes. Trick. So was, yes. Um, just look up Trick Slattery. It's a unique name. You'll come up. Breaking the Free Will Illusion for the Betterment of Humankind. Yeah. Okay. He, he's, he's really good, and he's Canadian. Excellent. Okay. And uh, a lot of people haven't heard of him, but I really like him. No. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk with us. Thank and you, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. So, Ian, I hear you have a new podcast. You want to cut a promo for us right now? Let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> um, I don't have a promo prepared. Um, a wrestling promo, I'm assuming you yeah. mean. But, uh, yes, I did start my own podcast about professional wrestling. And uh, my buddies and I from work, we uh, sit down um, after every pay-per-view. So there's going to be one a month. And the name of the podcast is the Fall Away Slam Podcast, the only podcast that matters. <laughs> Except for this one. Yeah, right, yeah. This one is slightly above that one. We've got a, a little asterisk on your tagline. Yeah. Except for Life, the Universe, and everything else. Yeah. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, actually. <laughs> yes. That's actually very funny. It's I'm going to be do in that. there. Yeah, because then that, you know, every, all the seven people that download my podcast <laughs> might listen to yours. <laughs> you, you've already had, like, at least, you know, 40 or 50 downloads, I think. Shut up. How do I? Well, we'll have to talk about that after. But anyway, <laughs> search for it on iTunes. It's a fallaway slam podcast about professional wrestling. It's highly entertaining, I hope. Uh, I, I can attest, it is highly entertaining. So, for those of us who know nothing about wrestling, fall away slam. Like, and do you want to demonstrate on me? Do you just like the slam into somebody and then fall back? Um, it's actually... Jen ah! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah. that is the sound of a fall away slam. Do you want me to describe the motion of a fallaway slam now for the people who didn't see the is demonstration? That, is that your hand or your arm hitting the mat before your body actually touches? You know, like uh, the fallaway slam is a is a maneuver. You can it's often referred to as the sack of shit slam because you <laughs> imagine yourself holding a big bag of manure and you literally just throw it backwards over your head. Oh, okay. So you're falling away as you're slamming your opponent on on the mat. All right. It was actually the name of our. Um, Yes, I'm this obsessed with professional wrestling. We were going to start a band that does only professional wrestling theme songs. 
So all the wrestlers from the <laughs> 80s, like Hulk Hogan's theme song and Bret Hart, we were going to cover them and play them live. And we were going to call the band Fall Away Slam, but then that, of course, never happened. So this podcast is far easier to do than a band. We just, so we called it the Fall Away Slam Podcast. The Fall Away Slam Podcast. I'm just going to say it as many times as possible. Really cement it in there for people to want to go check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes, too. Thank you. Uh, we'll also put links to Sam Harris's and Trick Slattery's books on the illusion of free will in the show notes, uh, along with a link to Dennett's compatibilist book, Freedom Evolves. Uh, I haven't actually read Free Will. That's Harris's most recent book on the subject. Uh, my opinion of Harris actually took a beating when he went toe-to-toe with Bruce Schneier over security and profiling and never really recovered. So, um, why don't we talk really quickly about, first, the problems that the traditional definitions of free will have, and uh, then talk about some of the problems that d- we have with determinism. Uh, so, can you guys think of any problems that the idea of free will has? I, I, we've we've talked about some of them, um, like the uh, the idea that it requires dualism, essentially, uh, a separation between the mind and the physical universe, in in a way that can't be accounted for in the laws of physics. Um, any any other uh, problems that you can think of? That seems like a pretty basic one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we need any more. Uh, I know the fact that it lets um, people who believe in a deity use it as the "why is your god so terrible?" Uh, getaway free card, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny. So Ashlyn is talking about the the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, which is a classic problem in theology, and various theodicies. Uh, those are answers to the problem of evil, are, are offered. And the most common one is, well, suffering is the result of uh, the exercise of free will. And free will is such a good thing that God permits suffering to happen in order to allow free will to exist. Uh, which has what? a bunch of problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say that again. <laughs> so why does God allow murders and rapes and, you know, yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. to happen? Genocide. And also, like, genocide, you know, whatever. And the idea is, because God gave us free will, Free will is such a good thing. It is such a, a universal good that even if, you know, petty things like genocide and murder and rape and all, all sorts of terrible stuff happen as a result of people exercising their free will, it would be even worse if God were to step in and uh, remove our free will. Huh? So, that, yeah, that, that is honestly one of the most popular theodicies. So that, there are a bunch of problems with that. One of them is, you know, the fact that a lot of suffering is not the result of exercises of free will. It's the result of, like, hurricanes and earthquakes and shit. Right, uh, yeah. But those are, of course, exercises of Satan's free will, not uh, like plate tectonics and fluid dynamics and, you know, Coriolis effects and like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I guess, you know, you can't believe in physics. So another problem with, with that response is uh, that it essentially negates the idea of criminal justice because if God's stepping in to stop, you know, a murder from happening, if that would be an infringement on the murderer's free will, then isn't a policeman stepping in to stop the murder also an infringement on the free will? And if free will is such a great thing, shouldn't we just allow that to happen? Because that's what God does, (laughs) you know? What would Jesus do, right? Apparently allow the murder to happen. (laughs) That is a very good point. (laughs) I've never thought of it quite like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But my favorite response is, does free will exist in heaven? Because the idea is God had to give us free will, knowing that it would cause all of this horrible stuff to happen. But he gave us free will because it was great. 
So, and, and he couldn't have given us free will without allowing us to, you know, exercise that free will to do all sorts of terrible stuff, right? But if free will exists in heaven, presumably people aren't going around like murdering people in heaven, <laughs> aren't going around like torturing or, you know, raping or stealing each other's like, I don't know, like Cloud. harps or whatever. But only the pure of heart get into heaven. Right. But <laughs> why couldn't God create a universe like, because we know that a section of the universe exists in which people are presumably perfectly free. They're, they have free will, but they freely choose to never do anything evil. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in heaven, right? So either God has to allow all of this horrible stuff to happen in heaven, or he has to remove their free will, or... The third option, and, and neither of those two options seem very consistent with, with Christian theology, or the third option is it is possible to have a place where everybody is exercising their free will to its fullest extent, but they freely choose not to kill people and stuff. And so the question becomes, why wouldn't God give us that kind of free will? Why wouldn't the universe exist in, in that state of order with us having free will but him putting all the marbles in motion such that we never choose to do horrible stuff. Because reasons. <laughs> Original sin, that's always a good reason. <laughs> right, but, but <laughs> no, no, I know. Adam I know chose to <laughs> you know, listen to his wife. I'm just trying to think like a Christian, all right? right? <laughs> as difficult as that can be. Yeah. Yes. So, um... Uh, another another problem with the idea of free will is that we do know, as I mentioned, that there is a causal influence on our decision-making process. So we know that there is some causal interference. You know, uh, you know, drugs, uh, psychological priming is a, is a big one. If you make people read a a text on like civics or a text on the, the rule of law, and then have them make a decision about how to punish somebody, their decision will be uh, different than if you have them read like uh, a comic strip. <laughs> so psychological priming will have an effect on our decision making. We know all of these things do impact our decision making in a causal way. So while we can't prove full causal determinism in that sense, we can prove that there's causal influence, which is a problem for a libertarian idea of free will. Right. If you get if you wake up and stub your toe and then you ran out of toothpaste and then you missed your bus and you have a horrible day, your decision's going to be different than if yeah. you mm. didn't stub your toe and there's plenty of toothpaste and the bus was right on time. Exactly. Right. And your hair looks good. Yeah. Hair looks <laughs> and you had a good hair day. Yeah, uh, his hair always looks good. <sighs> well, it's not as nice as yours, Jim. <laughs> Uh, and we also know that physical damage to the brain, as we talked about with Phineas Gage, uh, results in changes to personality and changes to the way we exercise our will. So while we can't make a conclusive case necessarily for uh, full determinism, all of these issues are problems with a fully uh, libertarian, causation-free idea of free will. Makes sense to me. Sure. What kind of problems do we have with determinism? Are there any issues that you can see, any holes we can poke in this in this theory of will? I feel like I could have made another choice, all right? <laughs> I feel that deeply. Yep. I also feel that my child loves me, but I know that that's probably not true because children <laughs> are little sociopaths. <laughs> um, so one of the, one of the uh, most 
popular arguments against what is called hard determinism is actually a physics argument. And uh, it is the problem of hard indeterminism. Uh, it, it's the, the problem that on a fundamental quantum level, events do not seem to be causally determined, at least so far as we can understand. There do seem to be some quantum events that occur without uh, prior cause. Such as? Uh, an example is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Something about Breaking Bad, I'm assuming? Right, yeah. <laughs> the Heisenberg uncertainty principle states that we cannot know with absolute certainty both the position and the momentum of a given particle. So if you have a fundamental particle uh, that is uh, moving in space, we can know to some degree of certainty where it is, and we can know to some degree of certainty how fast it is going and momentum, but we can't know both for sure at the same time. So the two are fundamentally unknowable. In any event, the details aren't super important, uh, and we don't want to go into them too far because then, you know, we'll annoy those in our audience who actually have a better understanding of quantum physics than we do. Or no understanding. Right, yeah. Uh, so, but the idea is there are certain properties of the universe that are fundamentally unknowable and that appear to be causally indetermined, uh, that seem to be fundamentally random. That's what I was going to ask you, Jem, is, is unknowable and indeterminate similar or the same as random? That is a good question. I sit next to a PhD quantum physicist at work, so I will ask him. Could you? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, but the, the problem for determinism, then, for hard determinism, mm -hmm. every effect follows from a cause, right. or multiple causes, really. If the universe is fundamentally indeterminate, if there is fundamental randomness at the very base level of the universe, at the subatomic level, can it really be determined? And if things aren't deterministic, doesn't that leave space in that quantum foam for free will to operate? Yes, yes. <laughs> so in the interview, quantum actually, foam. in the interview, <laughs> August said uh, that our minds don't work on that level, uh, on the quantum level. So, no, so what that no. means is the decisions that we're making, they're still happening microscopically. They're not macroscopic decisions, but. Uh, the the level at which electrochemical signals travel along neural pathways, that is very far removed from the quantum level. And so any quantum indeterminacy should essentially come out in the wash. Uh, it should average out by the time you get up to that level of magnitude. Hmm. You know, we know, for example, that a given atom of cesium may or may not decay at any instant. We can't tell when that will happen. But if you've got a lump of cesium, you know what its half-life is. You know how long it will take for that lump of cesium to decay into, I don't remember exactly what cesium turns into, I don't know, some other element, okay? So while we don't know what every individual atom is doing, once you get up to the macroscopic level, on aggregate we know what it's doing we can't tell what each individual like water molecule is doing when we're swishing our hand around in the water but we know the waves are going to go like this and then like this and then like this right <laughs> right yeah yes exactly so 
if our minds don't work on the quantum level, then we don't really have to worry about this. What August is saying is that our neural pathways are far too large to be affected by the unbelievably tiny quantum mechanical fluctuations. That may be true, although in the last few years, uh, a few papers have been published touting the discovery of quantum vibrations in microtubules in the brain, uh, seemingly corroborating a theory of consciousness that relies on quantum mechanics. Deepak Chopra will be pleased. So maybe, but maybe not. Uh, I don't think that this makes a case for libertarian free will either way. As August and many others have pointed out, even if the functioning of our minds were affected by these quantum indeterminacies, this, uh, this effect is essentially random. How could randomness possibly give us free will? A random universe isn't free any more than a clockwork universe is, and nobody has been able to propose a mechanism by which some combination of randomness and clockwork can result in libertarian free choice, right? Makes okay. sense. Sure. No, I understand what you're saying. Another problem that people have with determinism is that we can't take credit. We can't fundamentally take credit for our successes. Everything essentially is a product of luck. It's a product of stuff that happened before you were born. It's a product of things that are happening out in the world. And you, who you are, is a product of things that you've seen, things that you've done, uh, the way you were raised. So we can't really congratulate ourselves for our successes. And, and I know when we've talked about it in the past, too, we've talked about, well, can we be punished for our choices then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you're getting to that, but I just wanted to, you know, take credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are moral implications. And again, we'll talk about this more when we do our criminal justice show eventually. But without free will, there's no moral responsibility. Now, th both this one and being unable to take credit, these are not really actually good arguments against determinism. It's just bad stuff that happens because we don't have free will, right? Uh, the argument takes the form of, but if determinism is true, then this bad thing is also true. And you're like, yep. Yeah, and. <laughs> you know, the, uh, if we were to agree that that's a good argument against determinism, that, uh, that's what's called an argument from final consequences. It's a logical fallacy. You're basically saying, um, if evolution is true, then that means that we're just, we're just animals. You can learn more about that on our Logical Fallacies show. Yeah. <laughs> or on our, our show about creationism, too. Yes. <laughs> this is often raised as an objection to determinism, um, but we already accept that there are cases in which our free will is compromised, right? Therefore, our moral responsibility is compromised. You know, if you're drugged, if you sustain brain damage, if some other event happens, you know, there are things that we recognize will make us not responsible for our actions. So we already accept that this is hypothetically possible. But for a lot of a lot of people, this idea that, you know, criminals aren't morally responsible, that's that's a, a deal killer. Yeah, right? it's hard to deal that? with because how do you then put them in jail for 25 years. Yeah, if they couldn't have made any other choice, if they were going to make that choice regardless, can we really blame them? And then you get things like, uh, is it the Bourne movies where they uh, invent something where they can tell ahead of time if you're going to do a bad thing and then they just put you in jail before you can do the bad thing? Oh, um, that's um, uh, that Philip K. Dick uh, Minority Report. Minority, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. But, like, see, that makes sense to me if... Indeed, we have no free will, but then putting you in jail is going to change what you would do, and like it's so messy, but and it, it makes sense, but it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no less an authority than Futurama has done 
a spoof of both that, the uh, the movie that you're referring to. What was it called? Minority Report. Minority Report, yeah. They also did an episode on Free Will where, where I think Bender is uh, doing a bunch of crimes and then it's found out in court that he's not responsible because he's a robot and therefore does not have free will. So he gets a free will unit put into <laughs> his brain so that he has free will. It's a very bizarre sort of thing. So would that work, Jam? Would we have free will if we just got a free will machine installed in our brains? I, I think it's a really a Wizard of Oz situation where you open up that free will unit and there's nothing in there. It's <laughs> a bit of straw or something. <laughs> right, yeah. You had free will all along. <laughs> Anyway, but see those two episodes of Futurama to uh, to better understand what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> Both good. My position is that this is actually better. And I know August got into this a little bit yeah. uh, d- during the interview. But I personally don't want a system of justice that is about punishing people who did bad stuff. You know, this isn't the system that we have, but ideally I would like a system of justice that is about preventing bad things from happening to people and about like reforming people so that they don't hurt people in the future. And the idea of determinism doesn't mean, oh, killer's going to kill, so I guess we just we just let them do that. No, you still have to protect society, and you can still have an impact on what people choose to do. You can still try to reform people because, yes, our uh, our actions may be determined, but we can have causal impact on decisions that people make moving forward. We can safely jettison the idea of moral responsibility from the discussion of justice and crime without doing any damage to a reasonable idea of a safe society. The only thing that would change is something that I think most of us already agree upon on an intellectual level, if not on an emotional one, that our system of justice should be based upon prevention and rehabilitation, not retribution. Understanding that nobody's truly free forces us to reevaluate our moral outrage. And if we get rid of the idea of moral responsibility, all that needs to change is that we're forced to focus less on punishing people and more on understanding the root causes of crime and addressing those causes. If we find a dangerous psychopath, hey, yeah, you lock them up, but not because their actions are solely their responsibility, not because they're a bad person, as if we could truly blame a person for their own character. We don't choose that. Uh, We shut them away from those they might harm because of the danger that they pose. And we treat them with compassion and with empathy. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Are you, do we have enough memory on this thing to talk about the Vince Lee case and how it pertains to this? Yeah. I think that we should probably touch on it very briefly. Who uh, who wants to give a primer on the Vince Lee, Tim McLean thing for people who might, might not be aware of it? I, I can give it a shot, but yeah, I don't have a lot of detail. Um, so it was in the news a few years back. Uh, it was a Greyhound bus en route to Winnipeg. To Winnipeg, yeah. Um, and from from the west. Yeah, but right around Portugal Prairie. And a man on the bus, uh, he had a, a knife mm-hmm. and used it to uh, decapitate a fellow passenger, Tim McLean, and also ate some of the body parts before police could get onto the bus and stop it. Uh, And the whole thing was just like hugely traumatizing for all of the other passengers and everybody else who heard about it. Um, And he was found not criminally responsible uh, due to uh, mental illness. Uh, And right now, um, 
Well, actually, for the past few years, he's been getting sort of more and more rights back as he recovers. And, uh, you know, he's on his medication and doing pretty good. Um, and so first there was outrage that he was allowed unsupervised walks on the in the grounds of the hospital where he was at. Um, and the most recent development is that he will now be allowed unsupervised visits to Winnipeg. And so there are some people who are very angry about this, that, you know, he needs to be held responsible forever for this thing that he did. And other people are like, cut him a break, man. He was not responsible for what he was doing then. I actually, I don't know if you saw this, Ian, but I was having a, a fight with one of our former co-workers uh, on uh, our friend's Facebook page uh, ab- about this because there was somebody who was saying that, um, and, and basically the argument that this, that this guy was, was making is that he at least gave lip service to, yeah, 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 he wasn't criminally responsible, he wasn't on his meds, but, you know, maybe he'll go off his meds again. And we were all, we were all saying, well, like, if you read the article... It says that doctors say he has less than a 0.8% chance of uh, of recidivism. Actually, just, I've got the article right here. Which is far better than some of the other prisoners that have been released at the end of their sentences For who sure. didn't partake in any rehabilitation in prison and now they're violent offenders and they're back out on the street. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Prob- it's probably better than me sitting here right now. <laughs> Recidivism yeah, rates yeah. for like in general for people released from prison are like 40, 50%. Like Exa- they're, yeah, they're, exactly. They're, yeah. they're pretty bad. The recidivism rates for those found not criminally responsible are between 10 and 15 percent. Uh, however, uh, uh, the likelihood of recidivism for Mr. Lee has been uh, determined to be less than 1 percent by, by his, uh, his doctors. Uh, so it, it is very likely he will stay on his meds, uh, but obviously people have a, a very emotional reaction to this. You know, it was a very gruesome crime that occurred. But uh, it is very unlikely that it will happen again. And that recidivism rate isn't for, like, beheading somebody. That's for just going off his meds and having some sort of violent reaction. It's very unlikely. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> this this guy was arguing, basically, you, you need to have... His chance of violently reoffending has to be less than 0.00000001%. That would still be too high. Wow. And I'm like, so you need it to be two orders of magnitude less likely than being struck by lightning? Right. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> Again, I have a chance of doing that tomorrow. Yeah, That's exactly. a better chance. Yeah. A- any yeah. of us, yeah. Uh, like, it's a- an awful thing that happened. Mm-hmm. But we-, we should exercise compassion, I think. And we should exercise restraint. All of us have this sort of uh, inbuilt, evolved bloodlust right okay. <laughs> where we want to punish people who hurt us or hurt those we care about or people we think are violent you know because so long as it's somebody else so long as it's not us we'd rather not take that risk right yep. and I, I totally understand like the visceral reaction of like they're just gonna let him wander around like for a second you're like oh but then you're like no wait like this logically makes sense. You just have to think about it for two seconds, just like every yeah. other topic and we talk about. And also trust, like, it's not like they're doing this on a whim. He's right. being overseen by... That was my point that I was making to yeah. some friends. It's like, it's not... It wasn't yesterday, and uh, it's, you know, it's not like it's... You know, I would say that the ex... Pe- people who are well-versed in, in the subject of mental health, as, as well-versed as they can be, have been on this case, helping this guy out. And at the end of the day, you got to trust... Though that those people know what they're doing and that they have no intention of endangering society by saying, eh, just let them go. Yeah. That's not their intention. 
And then at the end of the day, ultimately, you know, life is a dangerous game in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, you take an airplane, you got a chance of it crashing. Like Jem said, you got a chance of getting struck by lightning. Yes, putting this person out Ian on the street. Ian apparently has some thoughts about beheading people. Yeah, there's a there's a better chance than, than .08 or whatever it was. That's what I said. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, the way that I look at it is that, no, I, of course, I don't want anyone, let alone Vince Lee, harming myself or my family. But there's a chance that anyone at any time could do anything. So mm -hmm. you, you would have to live in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vacuum bubble room that's got white walls everywhere to completely avoid any sort of risk whatsoever. And if this person, going back to the sort of um, the free will thing that we're talking about, if this person was not found... To, to be criminally um, uh, guilty because of, of a mental illness or whatever it was, and that has now gone away or it's been, it's been put uh, under control. I mean, if it were me, if I had a psychotic episode uh, tomorrow, which seems more likely the more we talk about it, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't use myself as an example. But, and, and then I truly said, listen, just my mind went crazy. I snapped. I don't know what happened. I'm fine now. Give me the medication. I want to be introduced back in society. I would hope that I would be given that chance, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, human beings are kind of assholes who like to punish people, so I don't know if that'll fly. <laughs> I, well, then I better not do it. Uh, in closing, uh, I just want to say that when I proposed that we talk about this topic on the show, uh, Ashlyn said, as she mentioned, that this topic makes her sad, and she just wanted me to know that. But to Ashlyn and to everyone else who is made sad by the idea of being a robot a, a meat puppet if you will <laughs> remember what B.F. Skinner said in Beyond Freedom and Dignity uh, and if you don't remember I will tell you he said a theory about a thing does not change the thing the theory is about or as Robert Price said it more pithily a couple of times I saw Skinner strolling through Harvard Yard he didn't move like a robot because he espoused determinism this theory of mind doesn't fundamentally change the way you make decisions. You've always made decisions however you make them. And moving forward, you'll continue to make them. Terribly. Terribly, right. <laughs> I think a greater understanding is, is helpful. Uh, fear not. The philosophical struggle between free will and determinism doesn't have to be scary. And finding determinism convincing doesn't have to make your life any less meaningful or fulfilling. And as I said at the beginning, uh, this is a huge topic, and we can't possibly cover everything. So if you liked this topic, or if you hated it, or if you just <laughs> thought we were really, really wrong, let us know on Facebook, or on Twitter, or by email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. And uh, remember to check out the uh, new Fallaway Slam podcast uh, our friend Ian James is, uh, is putting together. Uh, the first episode is already out, and by the time you listen to this, the second episode might, might even be out. I just finished editing it uh, today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Sweet. It's about the Fastlane pay-per-view that just happened uh, last weekend for all those wrestling fans out there. And if you are that guy from the Secular Policy Institute, please stop emailing us. That oh, would yeah. also be good. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, th I, think he's, I think he's backed <laughs> off, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, kind of but just that guy. Missed, Everybody else should email me. us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for joining me, folks. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. It's been a blast. Have a good night, everybody. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman.
returned with more tea. Now we can keep going. Okay. Uh, without it being constrained by others, you know, you're you're not, you know, maybe you can't fly to the moon, but so long as you're not tied up in the trunk of somebody's car or um, somebody hasn't slipped you a Mickey or you should be a trigger warning at the start of the sentence, I guess. Jesus. Uh, well, now that all the uh, the next generation is on Netflix, it's just wonderful. And Jem has wasted his money on all those DVDs. I know. Yeah, how much money is that? Yeah. I, I asked him once how much he spent solely on Star Trek, and it's an astronomical number. Because mm -hmm. he's got them all. He's got the original series, the next generation, uh, Deep, Space, Deep Space, Nine. Space Nine, and Voyager. Yeah, yeah. How much did you spend on Star Trek DVDs alone? Which nobody actually watched Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine is the <laughs> best Star Trek. Okay. Uh, no, no, TNG. Oh, Sorry. Man. Sorry. It's, it's true, Jim. I mean. Uh, so all the TNG ones were about, uh, I got deals on them, so they're only about $120 per season. This was before <laughs> TV shows on DVD were, super, were like very common. Yeah, and yeah. And or oh, on yeah. Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. The Space Nine ones were a little bit cheaper. Mm, what does that tell you? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> and Enterprise, I think, were like That's 40. That <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> And where's the original series? Uh, Blu-rays right here. Uh, season two is actually in the drawer because what I was watching. There you go. Yeah. And I don't have all of Enterprise only the first two seasons because that is a not a great show and I never got around to finish. No, I we dropped watching it. Yeah. Yeah. I, but midway through the first bad. season, it was like blech. I watched the very last episode of it, but that's probably because it was really just an episode of Next Generation. <laughs> So he was supposed to be young Riker, but it was unconditional. Did he have free will when he made that decision? Yeah. <laughs> did he? Did Riker have free will? Oh! Oh! oh. oh. Ah. <laughs> Nailed it. That's, That's bad. The worst. Sorry, I'm just I'm just reading here to get the uh, to get the uh, the the exact. Uh, See, we can spend an there. hour trying to figure out what compatibilism is. Jem can read something in thirty seconds and have the gist of it. I hate you and your <laughs> your damn brain. I actually, I don't know if you saw this, Ian, but I was having a, a fight with one of our former coworkers on uh, our friend's Facebook page ab about this because there is somebody who was saying that... Um, you don't have to put this in the podcast, but I'm just curious as to... I didn't see it. Who was it? Uh, the guy who was, who was fighting with me? Yeah. Um, uh, what is his name? Do I know him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember what his name is. Oh. Um, this is, really has, I mean, no bearing on anything. I was just curious because I've I seen a, a ton of things posted on this Vince Lee situation. Um, and I know how I feel about it, but I haven't been reading people's diatribes because I, I feel as though, uh, you know, it could get very sticky very fast. It's not important, Jim. I was just curious who it was. It's not, uh, just, let's, let's not waste. Oh, cut. I found it. I found it. Um, oh, shit. I lost it. <laughs> I click. I clicked on the wrong thing, and because Facebook it. has the infinite scrolling thing, uh, I have to scroll back down. No, no, no. I've got this. It's uh, Chris, Dave, uh, Steve. Is, is, it, is it? Is it? Is it? Uh, uh, oh, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of those names. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, that... You should just put that in there. That fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, you can cut everything else out, but just oh, that fucking guy. Right. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he uh, carry on. I also think that we should play a drinking game. Um, maybe our listeners can can join in on this. Every time that you can tell that Jem is reading a prepared statement, drink. <laughs> <laughs> Your voice changes and it's funny. Oh, does it? Yeah. 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 Well, my becomes, eyes also go to the screen. It becomes so official. I like it. Yeah.